Hi, everyone. I'm Tim Mikhailashvili, your host of the All Out Coach podcast, where leaders share their legacy across different industries. Today, I'm excited about my guest, my friend, former colleague, Dave Giles, full-time father. His last position was national director at Mallinckrodt of the sales organization. How are you, Dave? How are you I'm doing? doing great. How are you? Good. It's great to reconnect with you. Fantastic. Considering uh, our social distancing rules and you know our technology uh, allows us to make this kind of happen in, very, in real time. Dave, I'd like to tell everyone first before before you tell us about your journey and some of what you've been busy with and inspired with how I met you. I was first introduced to you when I was new in my career in the pharmaceutical industry at AstraZeneca by my manager. And uh, I had a lot of respect for my manager because I had seen how he impacted others. I had seen firsthand other sales reps early in their career just look up to him, consider him as a leader. So when he told me, and he spoke so fondly to me about you, and when he introduced me at a large meeting, that already was enough. You know, because for me, the way I look at leadership is you're not a leader until you create other leaders. It was evident that he created leaders and it was evident that he had a lot of respect for you because you created many leaders. So when I first talked to you, I even remember our first interaction. And uh, even though I was early in my career, you're tremendously authentic, I thought, and just down to earth, which allowed me to think that I could approach you if I had some important issue later on down the line. It was you, made, you were very approachable despite your senior role at the company, at the big, at large company such as AstraZeneca. So that was my first interaction impression of you. I'm glad you've made the time here, Dave. And I just want you to begin and t- take us through your career journey. What were your, some of the turning points in your career? <laughs> well, before I do that, I just want to thank you first for having me on your podcast. And also say that your description was very humbling. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. I have had, um, I've been blessed with a wonderful career with multiple companies. I've gotten a chance to meet many wonderful people such as you. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't be more grateful for that at all. And I can tell you, it didn't start out like that <laughs> at all. I, uh, I worked my way through college and graduate school selling high-end stereo equipment. I loved it. Never thought I'd do anything else, quite honestly, but there was nowhere else to go in that job. So I went and interviewed with a well-known consulting company. And at the end of the day, the managing partner said, I'll call you in two weeks. You know, let me know. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you your offer in two weeks. And if we don't call you. Here's my card. Call me. Great. So I had actually been out on field rides with a couple of reps. One was with uh, Pfizer. One was with, uh, gosh, I can't remember. I just remember they sold Calan SR. <laughs> and I thought they did as drug reps. And I thought, I don't want to do that. That doesn't look very interesting. Um, but anyway, two weeks came and I always tell people, look, you know, be really sure about what you want in life and what you don't want, because you're going to end up with one of the two. Cause I decided I didn't want to be a drug rep because everyone else wanted to be one. So anyway, I get this call back or I called the uh, managing director for the consultancy and he said, uh, we're not hiring. We're in a hiring freeze. Now, I don't know if you'll remember in the early nineties, went through a little bit of a recession because George W. Bush said no new taxes. But in the middle of an economic downturn, he raised taxes. So not meant as a political comment, more as an economic one. That said, I asked the guy on the phone, the managing director, he and I built a good relationship. I said, if you were me, what would you do? He said, well, you seem like you'd be a good salesperson. And I said, okay, what would you sell? He said, I don't know, something really complicated and uh, 
you know, something helpful and something expensive or, or maybe not expensive, but just, you know, value add. So what would that be? He said, pharmaceuticals. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, I had a really good friend who's leaving her job at Merck to go to work for a new company called Astra Merck, which was a joint venture between Astra and Merck. And nobody knew if this thing was going to work. There were a lot of people leaving Merck, you know, at the time, the most admired company in the U.S., and going to this little startup called Astra Merck. And I still remember um, interviewing for Merck, and they were trying to get me to meet their regional director, and I said, I can't go that day. And they're like, why? And I said, well, I have another commitment. And they said, is it an interview? And I said, it, it is actually. And they said, is, who's it with? And I asked for Merck. I thought well, their Merck won't matter. And they're like, ah, oh, they started going off on it about how bad it was. And I was, oh. Anyway, I went to the interview and I was immediately impressed by the fact that Astra Merck as a company put culture first. In fact, before they built anything, they built the culture. And I want to give a lot of credit to Matt Emmons, who's subsequently been, gosh, you know, in many leadership roles across the industry. But that was Matt's idea. And he was head of sales at the time. That's what he wanted to do create something really, really different where culture was the first and most important thing. So I remember going to the meeting, the launch meeting, the company never existed before June 1st, 1992, and hearing about their vision for the future. And a part of the vision was uh, that they wanted to change the way the pharmaceutical industry operates. And I was shocked by that. But I have to tell you, when you look at that company, which was like one of the early to do uh, sample send, one of the first to build their own um, consumer relationship management platform, you know, one of the first to have a really decentralized model uh, with fewer layers, more, more flat organization, more empowerment. Um, and the people that came out of there, I mean, Matt Emmons, Mike Cola, God, Kirk Graves, Mark Mallon, you could go on and on. I mean, it was a, a leadership uh, a generator. So, I really credit a lot of my own personal um, desire to create a positive culture from the fact that I started with that company and it made such a huge difference. Uh, I was really fortunate there. I was a rep. I was a business manager, which at the time was a really cool job. Uh, and then I went to headquarters and led strategic planning and contract management and development and came out and uh, opened up one of our six business units, which were business centers mm -hmm. with a decentralized model. I ran operations there and then ultimately became a regional sales director. And uh, I was told that I couldn't be a regional sales director at first because they said, you're too analytical. You can't lead people. And I said, okay. But uh, subsequently, I ended up getting a job and really focused on it and focused on leading people. And that, that was what that job was all about. That's what most any job's all about. But I have to say, we and the team were very successful there, so much so that I was recruited to go to headquarters and work in marketing with AstraZeneca. I uh, did that a few years, then went to Shire, worked in marketing initially, and then global commercial operations, built a new team there, and left, uh, went to the vendor side briefly. I have great respect for everyone on the vendor side. That's a tough job, and they don't always get treated well, so I would ask you, you know, please treat your vendors well. They're working really hard. Um, but then I was recruited to Mallinckrodt, where I built the new neurology team in the new headquarters in New Jersey when they moved from St. Louis. And subsequent to that, uh, after about a year, I became head of sales for the neurology group. And I absolutely loved it. Um, there have been some, as you, as you know, we've had some challenges in our personal lives. 
And those challenges provided opportunities. And one of them was that I had the opportunity by working with Mallinckrodt, and I can't say enough good things about my manager, Joe Renda, or the HR group there at Mallinckrodt, but we worked together and uh, I actually was able to leave Mallinckrodt on, on very mutually favorable terms. So that as of last July, I am now a stay home dad to my twin sons who just turned 13 and who've been homeschooling since March. So it's actually worked out really, really well. Yes, and that is a full-time profession, particularly when you consider your roles, you know, your global roles, where you probably didn't have much time to spend with your sons, right, your children. Oh, my God. Um, Before. Uh, I tell you, I tell everybody, it's a lot easier to lead a national sales team of over 100 people than it is to raise two boys. It's mm. just, it's a lot easier. Um, I, I, to your point, Tim, I had spent until about three and a half years ago, I, my job was to go out and run my career and lead people and generate results and, and bring home money for the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was still there as a dad, but not as much because I was focusing on that. And then after my wife passed in uh, September of 2016, I, I was in obviously a totally different place. And um, we tried out to have a couple of nannies. Uh, I tried to continue working. Um, my boys had a couple of challenges though. And I decided that if I was going to say that my legacy was leaving behind two wonderful young men, that I needed to focus my priorities and my time on that. And I had to learn a lot. Like I think I told you at one point, my wife managed everything. She managed the house, the boys, the money, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how much money we had or where it was, <laughs> to be honest with you. Right. Uh, she did a very good job, but I didn't, I, we didn't really talk about it. So there was a lot there that I would say, you know, there's a, a lot to learn. And it's not something I was, thought I was going to do or I thought I was going to be good at. Right. So I went to the best people I could find to learn, how do you do this? Because the one thing I knew after that is I have to be the best dad because I, I have to be the best parent that my children can, can possibly have because that's what they deserve. Yeah, and leadership is sort of like parenting. I wanna talk a little bit about uh, your transitions throughout your career. You've held many different roles. Uh, what has been key, some of the key factors to you moving up, rising in the ranks, having more responsibilities? It's a really good question. I think the first big transition that anyone has gotta make is, um, kind of individual contributor to team leader because it's no longer about you. It's about how you can inspire, lead, direct, motivate, hold accountable, develop, especially the people on the team to generate the results because you can't possibly do it from where you sit. Right. And I think when it comes to that, what I learned is hire the absolute best people you can find. And hire and develop for greatness and believe that there is greatness in each person. Now that said, you'll also learn um, not everybody has the same approach. Not everybody has the same desire for greatness. And you can't, if someone doesn't want to develop, you can't want it more than they do. It's something really important to learn. Um, But I did learn that, that, that it really isn't about you anymore. And, that was a big deal because I was used to being a high performer. I knew how I did it. Um, but 
the way I do it or did it wasn't necessarily what I expected the way someone else would do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the most important thing. Number one is, is, uh, have great people, um, treat them well, create a solid culture, lead, motivate, and develop, and focus on the results. And, and not just the results, because I always like to focus on, like, not what we're doing today, but what that's going to mean. Because I still remember Matt Emmons said about sales reps. He said this at our first, at our launch of Astro Merck. I remember he said, we're not in the, in the drug business. We're in the information business. Because the information that we provide to prescribers to make decisions to help their patients is really what's the most important thing. It's the decision. And so when I was a sales leader in particular, I talk about, think about the fact that there are hundreds, thousands, maybe more people you'll never meet. You'll never know. But because of what you can do in inspiring your teams and what our teams can do in working with with our customers, our prescribers, to make good decisions based on risk, risk and benefit, what kind of impact can you have in those people's lives? I mean, how many people are living longer because they got their cholesterol tested and they were treated with Crestor? How many people are avoiding negative consequences of reflux disease with Nexium? How many uh, people's lives have improved because they found their potential that something may be holding them back, like ADHD, and then they had that treated? You know, a lot of those things wouldn't happen for people if, if the, the, the folks on our teams didn't inspire that to happen. That's, I always think about what's the ultimate goal. So that's kind of one, that was a long way of saying it's not about you, it's about your team, right? Good. The second thing I learned is don't ever try to be something you're not because you're not that and you're not going to do well at it. You're <laughs> authentic, right? Which is- and it's to your point about authenticity, honestly. Because when I went to headquarters, I had been in sales and I went into marketing. And I thought, okay, now I'm in marketing. I have to be a marketer and I have to work in headquarters. So I have to behave a different way. And candidly, that was bad. (laughs) It didn't work out well at all, as a matter of fact. And I got really good feedback and I got really good development. And I figured out, you know what? I've got to bring who I am to this role, not try to be the role. It's about being fully who you are and what contributions you can bring in a role. It's not about you trying to be a role. And I think that's really, really important at every level of leadership because people aren't looking for someone with a title. People are looking for someone that they can believe in, trust, listen to, and and work with. I like that point very much. I like the way you just described it. I absolutely agree, Dave. Following up on that point of uh, authentic and being authentic, I sometimes wonder you know, when we have a lot of coaches train and mentor others and tell them, look, got to be authentic, be a genuine. Is there a need to also train and mentor on what place someone ha- has on society, on their impact on others? Not everyone's authenticity may have society's impact, their company's benefit you know, as its primary goal. So how do you train somebody to really assume more responsibility, to think about something, someone else rather than themselves? Yeah, you know, I, I think that really the key to being authentic is to not be inauthentic, <laughs> if that makes sense. It, again, it's not, you're not playing a role. You have a role in society. It's very different than playing a role in a, in a stage production, right? You're not out there to look as if you are something. 
Right. No, you are the role. You have an important role, but be you in that role, right? Mm -hmm. It's about bringing who you are to the table. And some of that is about being completely who you are, being vulnerable. I mean, it's, I've learned it's fine. You know, I don't have all the answers. I've never had all the answers. I've always been upfront to tell people I've never had all the answers. Yeah. And if someone's got a better idea, I'd certainly love to hear it because we, we should, we should focus on the outcomes. And, and again, that kind of goes back to the very first thing. It's not about me. It's about we, it's about the team. It's about what we're trying to do. I think the other piece though is around orientation and it's just, um, what do you think about what you're doing and what it means? And I love a story of John F. Kennedy went to visit NASA and this is after he had put forth the great moonshot vision. And, uh, he went in and he saw a janitor and he asked the guy said, what, what do you do for a living? And the response was, I'm putting a man on the moon. And I think that is the kind of, that's the kind of thought process and the kind of orientation that you really have to have in any job in the company. It's not, you know, it's, 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 it's about the patient. I'll give you an example. I don't want to go into disease states, but I'll, I'll, sure. I'll give you an example of what we did in analytics when I was at Shire. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of work with rare diseases. There was one particular rare disease that it was primarily in children. It was an enzyme uh, disorder. And just to make it simple, the, the uh, body lacked this enzyme that removed waste from cells. You think that's pretty basic, right? But think about your house. Like if you don't take the trash out for a couple of weeks, you know, trash bags everywhere. I hope you put it in the trash bag, right? But it accumulates. And the same is, is true when this disease. What we found was that in that disease state, unfortunately, most of the kids were diagnosed really, really late. Um, and they were diagnosed before, I mean, they were diagnosed after cognitive decline had, had set in. Mm -hmm. And we actually did a lot of analytics work with a couple of different data companies. And we were able to find a set of um, other diseases that occurred or may have been misdiagnoses, misdiagnoses associated with this particular rare disease. And when we started looking into that more closely, we were able to lower the average age of diagnosis of the patients where we targeted with this intervention in those institutions, we were able to lower the age so significantly that those children who were identified and treated at that age were way before the age of cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I used to always talk to the team about, you know, we think it's about the numbers and the data and the math. It's not, it's about there's kids out there living normal lives, who would have had cognitive decline if the work that you did didn't help find them early enough. Yeah. And, and that's what I think about is like, that's what it means. Whatever job you have, that's what you're shooting for. That's a great perspective. I think for many people who may be in our industry or others who may listen to this, um, who may be critical, let's say of the pharmaceutical industry, but you know, right now there are 7,000 medic medications in development, 1% of which only, probably makes it there's so much you know time so many resources that are needed to advance the drug development of these uh, products uh, many of which are so promising and have these kind of patient outcomes like you're talking about how has the pharmaceutical industry evolved throughout your roles Dave you know if you don't mind I want to 
to uh, address one of the facets of what you just said, because this, this is really important and it's personally sure. important. And I, sure. I just want to share it with you. Um, my wife, we thought, was having panic attacks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because she would get nausea and vomiting and she would flush and she would sweat and she would have heart palpitations. And she went to the doctor and they looked at all of those symptoms and it was, you know, obvious, for lack of a better term, that she, was, she had panic disorder of some type. And so they gave her a treatment for the anxiety and a treatment for the migraine headache. And she was on those episodically for about seven years. Mm -hmm. And we noticed these attacks would get a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse over time. Um, we didn't know why. And they became more frequent. We didn't know why. But the medicine worked. And that's, that's important, right? The medicine worked. The problem is, I still remember the, the last time I saw her, she was having one of those attacks. And I said, um, now I closed the curtains and she said, I'm going to take a nap. The medicine, I'm give, please give me my migraine medicine. And I did. And I said, um, you know, we always said this to each other every time we left, because I learned from a mentor of mine in college, you know, you never know when it's the last time you see somebody. And so I still remember, I said to my wife, I love you infinitely and I always will. And I hope you feel better. Right? And unfortunately we came back to the room and she passed. Well, the people at the hospital kept asking, did she have arrhythmias? Did she have some cardiac issue? Mm -hmm. No, she didn't at all. Yeah. So we finally um, got the autopsy back. And I always tell people, if you have to choose a place for your final resting place, don't choose New Jersey because the bureaucracy is unbelievable. But anyway, <laughs> we, um, we were able to get the autopsy back and she died of a disease called theochromocytoma. Oh, yeah. And it, if you're familiar with it, it affects maybe yeah. one in 250 to 500,000. Yeah, very rare. Yeah, ultra rare, ultra rare. Um, and it's nothing we would have thought about. It's called the 90% disease. 90% of the people who have it, their families find out at the autopsy, like we did. But if it's identified 90% of the time, the tumor associated with it can be removed and the patient lives a normal life. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm passionate about is rare disease. Because rare diseases aren't rare. There's 7,000 of them. One out of every 10 people, check that, one out of every 10 people has a rare disease. When we found out how my wife died, one of my neighbor's brother-in-laws has a disease state that can lead to pheochromocytoma. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's shocking. So right. I've actually been working with a number of different companies and with the FDA uh, and to, to try to put in place a protocol instead of immediately jumping to a panic diagnosis, screen for pheochromocytoma. And it's an inexpensive blood test or urine test. And, you know, and that's just, that's my story. But to me, that's the power of what the industry does for good is yeah. helping to identify patients when something can be done, not after it can't be done, right? And I, I think a lot of the industry, disease state awareness ads, things like that, I don't know that we give the industry enough credit for public health. And I think that we should focus more on that because I think the industry does an outstanding job of that. Thank you so much for sharing this personal story, Dave. And, uh, you know, this is what I like to evoke. I like, I want to evoke emotions uh, out of people uh, who, 
come on my show and people whom I know for a long time. And uh, actually, it just so happens that this tragedy in your family is the one that ha that reconnected us. Because as soon as I heard about it, I remember contacting you because the, it was just uh, knowing how young you are, your young family and everything like that. It was just it was very disheartening and just very sad when I heard about it. But it's so great to hear that you're really extending your legacy and extending the boundaries of your legacy and what you can do to help so many other people's lives. You know, and you're continuing to be just uh, uh, very active in your community, in, in healthcare, and you're staying very strong as a father, as a leader. So I, um, what motivates me about this is I know what it means. And if we can, in fact, we did an early intervention working with an inside sales company. Mm-hmm. And one of the doctors who ended up getting on the phone with one of the agents after they talked about the disease, the doctor said, are you with the drug company? What are you trying to sell? And said, we're not selling anything. We're just, we're just raising awareness of this. I said, really? I said, yeah. The doctor said, this is one of the best things I've ever heard. I, I, I wouldn't have thought about that. I actually think I have a patient who may have that. Yeah. And if... I always look at it is if we can help one family to avoid that, right? One, one family, it's worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. So before I have asked you to also address the other side, right? The, the, and be a little bit critical, kind of push the boundaries a little bit about our industry that we share our experiences in. I want to ask you about the mentors that you've had. Just if you can, Tell us a little bit more about particular mentors in throughout your tra- tra- transitions in your career uh, or advice or relationships that you've formed, because I know how, how you, f- how strongly you feel about relationships. Yeah, actually I want to take a minute and talk about someone I think was probably one of my most important mentors, if not the most important, mm-hmm. one of my closest friends uh, and in his honor, because he's, he has since passed away sure. and that's Vic McKee. And Vic McKee was a sales leader at Astra Merck, uh, at Astra, AstraZeneca, and he became the customer center leader when we built the Nashville Business Center, the Nashville Customer Center. And I had the opportunity to work side by side with him um, in leading the operations team and, and working very, very closely with Vic. And I have to say that Vic was the most warm and genuine and authentic individual that I've ever met. And I was a young, ambitious, um, workaholic, crazy guy to get everything done and move as fast as I possibly could. And Vic was the person who helped me understand the importance of relationships. And that actually is the most important thing in my career. And I... I have to say, he's the one who, who basically was like, slow down, you know, don't think about what you're doing, think about what's going to happen, think about what it's going to cost. And he had a wonderful sense of humor, and he told all sorts of stories, and almost like parables, and you could remember with Vic. And I can tell you that there's not a person that knew him that was not impacted by him in a very positive way, not one. And there are probably hundreds of people who would say that their most important mentor was Vic McKee. Um, And Vic was actually my um, deployed leader when I had ended up getting a role in uh, as a sales leader. And I don't think I could have done that without Vic because 
he's the one who really helped me understand a lot about leadership of anyone, but especially about leading sales teams. Um, I would say the same of Doug McNamee. Doug was an, a, a wonderful leader. Uh, there was a time in my career and uh, a controversial character, but a guy that I learned a lot from, Mike Tilton. Uh, Mike, Mike's got his own unique way. <laughs> he ended up the entire cardiovascular franchise, right? The, yeah, he did. Yeah, and, uh, and but I like Mike, and Mike, Mike uh, was a brilliant guy. I learned a lot from Mike as well. Um, and I would say in my most recent role, um, a couple of people. One was Hugh O'Neill, who was the head of our group, and the other was my direct boss, who was Joe Renda. And Joe was uh, really an amazing leader, a very empathetic human, and I, I learned it. A tremendous amount from him and I don't want to leave out Marianne Jackson uh, because Marianne is the one who hired me into global commercial ops at Shire and was incredible um, in, in that way the story I was telling you about Marianne had a sales background primarily sales and marketing some operations but she was put in charge of the whole operations team um, I was leading Salesforce effectiveness uh, in the US and global data management and I ended up going into the office of one of the sales ops guys one day and I closed the door and I just said, Hey, how you doing? And he got really suspicious. And I said, what's wrong? He said, Hmm, why do you want to know that? I'm like, I just want to know how you're doing. And he said, well, Marianne was here yesterday and she asked me the same thing. And I said, okay. He said, you guys were both in sales at one point, weren't you? And I said, yeah. What do you mean? He said, Dave, I've been doing this job for 20 years and no one has ever asked me, how am I doing? <laughs> right. It's unbelievable. It's, and, to the, you know, to, to the culture and to the reality of uh, our corporate environment and our, our business. Right. How are you doing? And I, I think that's a, a big, big deal. You know, empathy. I often wondered about empathy and uh, empathy is uh, probably not something you can teach. You can learn. It can only probably be modeled through behavior and just something that it can be experienced. Um, thank people you. People don't know that you're real and that you care. And, and what is the saying? People don't care what you know until they know that you care. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, it, but it's true. I mean, it, it really is true. If we talk about some of the social media uh, relationships that are formed now, you, you told me a long time ago how important it was to have a LinkedIn presence and to have a lot of quality relationships and network. And, I'm only realizing that most recently where I'm very active on LinkedIn. Now, how do you really convert those real relationships into virtual relationships now? How are you doing that? Are there any tips that you have? Uh, yeah, I, I would say, you know, LinkedIn is an amazing resource. I, uh, I have been on LinkedIn since 2007 and I really, I love it. And it's, it's meant a lot to me. Uh, and being able to create and sustain relationships. I think that's really the key. I mean, people in this industry move around so much. I heard someone once call it a virtual Rolodex. And if that's all you use it for, that's just it, then that's great because at least you can keep up with people and where they are and what they're doing. Um, I also look at it sometimes as a news source. I think they have good news feeds. Uh, and I look at it when I'm trying to, um, you know, connect with someone on any level. I have I have a personal story about LinkedIn, if you don't mind. I can sure. share. So I, <laughs> this past summer, I was traveling with the boys. We were in Los Angeles, and I had the uh, American Express app came up. 
and I had uh, I had transferred some money into my personal checking account because I was having work done at my house that wouldn't ordinarily have been there. And so I uh, I needed to pay my American Express bill. And I was in this hotel, and I got on the American Express app, and I opened it up, and I'll just say it was a very big bill, biggest bill I ever had with American Express, biggest by far. So. We were on our way to Universal. I said, I want to get this thing paid so it's out of the way. I don't have to worry about it. So I go on LinkedIn and I am sitting at breakfast with the boys and I press pay. And nothing came back. And so I didn't, I didn't think it worked. So I turned it off and I let it go and I checked my email. I didn't get a confirmation. I didn't know. So I opened it up a little bit later. Didn't look as though it had actually processed or been paid. I pressed pay again. Again, same thing, nothing happened. So I let it go for a while. We go into the room, the boys are getting ready in a hurry, and then hurriedly, I just opened it up and hit pay again. And then I, uh, I went um, to Universal and had a great time. The next morning, I woke up really early and I thought, I wonder if that went through three times. And I opened up my checking, I opened up my email, and I had three confirmations from Amex. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I went on their chat feature, not helpful. I went on there, uh, on, uh, I called them, not helpful. I went on LinkedIn. Yeah. I found the global head, global senior vice president of customer service for, for uh, American Express. I sent him a very short note, told him the situation. He got back to me and said, we will take care of it. Uh, that afternoon, I got a call from his admin. And she said, we, will, we are taking care of your situation. Because of the amount, it's got to go through multiple levels of approval before we can debit it back to you or credit it back to you. Um, I said, that's fine. And she said, if it doesn't happen by this time, let me know. Okay, thank you. The next morning, I get a call from a guy. And he said, everything should be okay now. And I said, yeah, it is. It's all checked in. It's all back in my account, my checking account. Thank you. And I apologize. And he said, uh, just wanted to let you know that on our floor, like our customer service floor, everyone knew that today's most important priority was getting your money back to you. Yeah. And now, and I was like amazed, amazed at this. So the lady, the admin called me back. Um, actually, I think she was chief of staff. Now that I think about it, she called me back and said, did it, did it work out? And I said, yes, it did. And let me, let me recognize some people. And so to her, I recognized all the people in that call center who had helped me. And said, you know, thank you. And then I sent her an email with all of their names, thanking them for their outstanding service. And then I sent an, a, a note back to the global senior vice president of customer service at uh, American Express on LinkedIn. And I said, I want to recognize that. I want to rec I would like to recognize first, this was my fault. And I acknowledge that. Secondly, in business, a lot of the times it's not that something went wrong. It's how do you respond? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, I've never been more pleased with a response than yours. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank the following individuals for the following things that they did. And I listed every name of every person I dealt with and exactly what they did to, to bring it all together. And I sent it to him and he sent me back a thank you note, but I've never seen the guy in my life, <laughs> but it was amazing LinkedIn. I mean, it's, you know, personal situation, but you, uh, you can really connect with people. And the other thing is, is, I get recruiter calls from LinkedIn all the time. I'm sure everyone does. Sure. I'm not looking for a job. I have a job, full-time dad. 
but you'd be shocked at how often I will say, well, what else are you recruiting for? And let me see if I can help you. And I will then connect those people with other people in my network to try to figure out if there are other connections that can be made. So there are lots of things like that. I, LinkedIn has their own statistics that, sh that show the connection that gets most people most jobs using LinkedIn is a third degree connection. Yeah, not even first or second. Yeah, wow. Think about that. It's not who you know or who they know, it's who they know yeah. that helps most people. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And that, this is an amazing story that you told because I think there are two lessons here. You know, how important LinkedIn is in developing relationships and meaningful relationships. And then the second one, I think, for me is the story of generosity. Just your reaction is one that was just, to me, was very memorable here, you know, that I think many listeners can, can learn from uh, because you really didn't have, you didn't, you didn't have to go out of your way and to recognize everyone, but you made sure to do that. And then just like he didn't really have to necessarily go to great lengths, right? To investigate and make sure that you were a happy and satisfied customer. I've done similar things at T-Mobile where I've recommended people at when they've gone out of their way to help me, you know, yeah. without their asking to, you know, I had this one LinkedIn challenge that I started recently where I urged LinkedIn users in my network, my friends to recommend someone publicly without their asking them. It was my LinkedIn challenge. And, and this is why I actually changed my tagline and my description on LinkedIn, uh, adding energy, excitement, and character one relationship at a time. You know, I love it. Yeah, because it's truly my focus now because you can't really go after all those thousands of relationships. But if you make one change in somebody's life, like the one you described, it's a, it's a sign of, I think, a leg legacy, being responsible to our community or society at large. I, you know, I think a lot of the times we think about legacy as if it is a word that is in all caps and it's, chiseled into a fine piece of granite somewhere right, you know, right. on the top of the pedestal. Yeah. You know, that's the capital L legacy. Like I'm yeah. leaving, I'm, I'm Bill and Melinda Gates and I'm leaving behind the Bill yeah. and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah, it's something like, like as if it were to happen sometime at the end of life, right? Only. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's unattainable to most people. Like it's just, right. you couldn't leave a legacy. What I would say though is think about the little L legacy. Think about the people that you've had an impact on you never even thought about that's people's legacies that's the difference that you make and you, you and i talked about this from a leadership perspective i always say one thing that the best bosses in the world and the worst bosses in the world have in common is this they're both talked about at the dinner table yeah. now they're talked about very differently right and but they're talked about think about the impact as a great boss you have on someone given that employee energy, inspiration, direction, guidance, motivation, purpose, now recognition, and they go home and they tell their family about what a great day they had and the people that they helped and how great it is to work with these people, right? As opposed to someone who's oppressed or beaten down or circumvented or not respected or talked over in meetings and they go home feeling smaller than they did when they left. Yeah. And that has an impact on their family too, right? So I've always said, I think as leaders, we need to acknowledge it doesn't matter what your level is. In fact, I think it's not just about leadership, it's about working with people. 
everything you do to your point about adding energy one relationship at a time that's exactly what life's all about it's exactly what we should be tuned into doing um mm -hmm. I'm, i love it yeah 